seems like every couple of years there's a study that, that some group does where they talk about the changing uh, religious atmosphere in America. And, and usually the big headline is that there's an increasing people that, they, that are called the religious nuns, people that have no religious affiliation. You know, people that identify uh, not with any religious affiliation, but it would include atheists or and agnostics or people that just say they're nothing. Uh, for example, Pew Research uh, Center has, has tracked this, and they said in, the, in between the 70s and 80s that it was always fewer than one in 10 people that identified in this group. Uh, but a few years ago, they found that 23% of, of people now identify as religious nuns. Another survey just done a couple years ago, American Family Survey, put the number at 34%. And uh, now we look at that, and, but what's interesting is in the middle of that survey, consistently, every survey shows that by far, more Americans identify as Christians than any other group, way more than the nuns. You know, yes, that number is increasing, but still, surveys put between 55 and 70% of Americans still identify as Christians. Now, on the one hand, that can seem discouraging because that number seems to be a significant decrease over the last few decades, over 10%. But on the other hand, we might look at that and it might be somewhat surprising because those who are followers of Christ would, would pretty much all affirm that in our everyday experience, it doesn't seem like half the people or more than half the people we interact with share our faith. You know, so if over half the Americans identify themselves as Christians, boy, that doesn't seem to be our experience. And so we ask, okay, why is it that you have such a high percentage of, of Americans identify themselves as Christians, and yet, you know, we don't seem to experience that well over half of the people that we interact with, that that seems to be true. Well, a lot of it is a question of what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? If you ask, okay, what does it mean to be a Christian? I'm sure that most people would say, well, I believe in Jesus. Well, then what does it mean to believe in Jesus? And that's a huge question. What does it mean to believe in something? You know, we can think about this even in our own practical experience. What does it mean to believe somebody, something that, you know, is true? I mean, I, you know, we could be driving somewhere and, and somebody would tell, tell you, hey, watch out, you know, I was out in the roads and, and uh, you know, the police have a bunch of speed traps out there today. And how do you know if you really believe that or not? Well, if you go out there and you're driving the speed limit, you're watching very carefully, you believe it. If you go out and, and drive, you know, normally, well, not that I, that's not that me, but, but in theory, if you drive, like, over the speed limit, you know, well, the, question, the fact is you may think it, but you don't really believe it. Or, or we think about in our own lives. How many of us hear a report, something, some kind of scientific study, and they tell us how important it is to exercise more, not to eat these certain things. They're so bad for you. They're going to make you feel bad. They're going to make you unhealthy. And, and do we believe it? Well, does it change your behavior or not? There are certain things that I may know, but I really don't believe because my action or lack of action shows what I really believe, what I think is really true. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Does it mean that we know certain things, that we think certain things? And, and even then, what is it that we think we believe? That he existed? That he, that he actually died on the cross? That he did miracles? Was that enough? What if we believe that he was a great teacher? And we're studying the Gospel of John in the very beginning of the Gospel. Look at what John said. He talks about the importance of belief. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
It's not that every person that lives becomes a child of God. No, it's those who receive him and who believe in his name. But what does it mean to receive him? What does it mean to believe in his name? Those things seem to go together. What does it mean? Throughout our study of the first six chapters of John, and now as we begin chapter 7, one of the themes that is consistent throughout this whole gospel is that there are many people who seem to follow Jesus, who, who seem to like him, that seem to be you know, excited about his ministry, and, but yet the gospel writer says that they don't really believe. Well, they love him as a miracle worker. They love him as a teacher. They believe something But John says they don't really believe in who Jesus is. In fact, throughout the Gospels, you see both the Gospel writer and Jesus himself confronting not the unreligious people as the unbelievers, but confronting the religious people, confronting even those who seem to identify with him as as his disciples, as his followers. We're going to see this morning in John chapter 7, John really pulls a lot of these ideas together, and he, and he identifies three different groups of people who were either religious or, or identified as a follower of Jesus Christ, all of whom, John says, didn't have a true faith, didn't have a true belief. And he's not just talking about people then, and, and these people, the problem that they had, and, and what it meant to have a false faith then. I think he's talking about truths that are still for us today that it's possible to identify as a follower of Christ, even to be a part of the church, to identify as a Christian, but yet have something less than what the Bible describes as true faith. Now, the context of this in chapter 7 is really a continuation and conclusion of of everything that was in chapters 5 and 6. In chapter 5, Jesus went to Jerusalem and he did this incredible miracle at the Pool of Bethesda where he healed this person. And it was on a Sabbath and it created this controversy. And the rest of chapter 5 is Jesus then responding to the religious people and trying to teach about the meaning of the miracle. But we're told that in in chapter 5, 18, that that the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus because of what he did. Well, then he leaves Jerusalem and he goes to Galilee in chapter 6. And we're told in chapter 6 about his ministry in Galilee. And there he did an amazing miracle of feeding 15,000 people. And, And then the rest of the chapter is his teaching about the meaning of that miracle. And we see different people responding to what they saw, excited about the miracle, but do they have true belief? And now we pick it up in chapter 7. And in chapter 7, we see kind of this summation of, okay, these are different kinds of people that that seem to believe that really don't. And the first is what we're going to see here in 7 is people that have a belief, but it's really not a belief because it's an unbelief that's expressed as faith in Jesus as a miracle worker. There's a kind of faith but it's not a true faith, as, as the Bible says. Look at John, John 7, 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Then the Jews' feast of booth were at hand. Now, this takes us back to chapter 5. The last time he was in, in Judea, the, or Galilee, the last, or Judea, the last time he was in Jerusalem, the people there wanted to kill him, and they remembered that, and he knows that, that the religious leaders are against him. So he's been now in this northern part of Israel, Galilee, and he's there doing the ministry there. And, and in the midst of this, what we see now is that Jesus talks about his brothers. Now, so his brothers said to him, now some people might look at that and say, well, did he have brothers? And especially I remember, you know, being baptized Catholic, you know, they're like, well, no, Mary didn't have any other children. No, the Bible says actually she did. She, he had four brothers. Actually, some of them eventually became not only believers, but leaders in the church. 
And so, but at this point in time, they don't believe. And so it talks about these brothers coming. Verse 3, his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now again, we remember in John 6, Jesus did this incredible miracle, feeding of thousands of people. And the response of the people was, this is the prophet. We want to make you king. And then when Jesus confronted them with teaching that called them to, to surrender their hearts, you know, they turned away from him. And this is the same thing. And what we see here is that the brothers, they want to believe. There's a sense that they believe in Jesus. But they believe in a God that they want. And that's keeping them from believing in the God that is. You see, they're encouraging him now to leave the small towns of Galilee and, and to go to, down to Jerusalem where the people are. Especially now during the feast. When all the people were, were doing this. And why? Because they wanted everyone to see his works. Now, what was their motivation? Think about this. What was their motivation? They believed that he was a miracle worker. They had seen it. They had they'd seen that there's something that he's doing that's amazing. They can't explain. But what they also thought is that his miracles would win a great following. Pretty much like they'd seen with the feeding of the 5,000. Hey, Jesus, if you want to be a great teacher, if you want a great following, well, then go to where all the people are. Do the miracles very publicly because, because then people are going to follow you. And I think they're pushing this because they're looking at it and they're saying, and, and the, the really popular teacher will be the brother. You know, we're, we're related to him. It's going to help us because of our association. Now, here's one, something I want to point out, though. Let's look again at these passages. In verses 3 and 4, it's saying that he's, they're encouraging him to take his ministry publicly. And in verse 5, it tells us, for not even his brothers believed in him. And, and the word, therefore, could be probably better translated because. So it's saying, okay, the, the, you know, he, they want him to take him public. Why? Because not even his brothers believed in him. It's saying that the motivation for them to, to push him to go to the big city and make this ministry public was because they didn't believe. Now here we have to ask, what in the world is this saying? It doesn't seem to match. Now if they said, we don't believe in the miracles, we, we think this is all smoke and mirrors, or we don't want to be associated with you because of what we're doing, and they said that because they didn't believe, we would understand that. But here they believe in the miracles. They believe he can do these things. They believe that he can go there and, and publicly he can draw this great crowd. And they want him to succeed. They want him to win more fans. They want him to have a great following. And it's saying that it comes from unbelief. And you're sitting there saying, how does that work? See, it's the same idea that we saw people stumble over in chapter 6. In chapter 6, what happened is that the people were excited and they wanted to make Jesus king, but they didn't want to accept him as Messiah. They wanted to accept him as a God that would, would feed them and do the things that they want and free them from the Romans, but they didn't want to accept him for who he was. That a God that came to expose our sin and then to die for that sin to offer us forgiveness. See, the principle is here is so important is that our belief in God our belief in the God we want keeps us from faith in the God who is. See, if we have in our mind this idea of the Jesus that we want, the God that we want, 
okay, I want you to do this. And, and I, you know, the Jesus, you know, I talk to people all the time. Well, well, the Jesus I believe in, the Jesus that I'm, you know, it's kind of like in my mind, here's what I'm comfortable with. And I have this idea of what Jesus looks like or what God looks like. And if we insist that, we will miss the God who is as he's revealed himself in the Bible. The only way to truly believe in Jesus, to truly accept Jesus, is to believe in him and accept him for who he is as, again, he's revealed it in the Bible. And when we say and insist anything else about Jesus, we may affirm, he's a great miracle worker, he does all these great things, I believe he's powerful and But in reality, as long as we insist on believing in the God that we want, it will keep us from truly having a true faith in the God who is. So in their case, embracing Jesus as the miracle worker that may be of God, but he's going to accomplish our goals. And see, it totally kept them from seeing the, the Jesus who came to forgive sins. And again, the problem isn't something that is just then. It's a problem that we still have today. You know, we believe the wrong things about Jesus. We, we believe that Jesus exists to accomplish our goals. Churches even teach that idea. You know, that it's like, okay, well, how do I get this? And how do I get Jesus to help me have my best life and to do? No, the fact is, is that what the Bible teaches is that Jesus didn't come to empower our agenda, but to expose and then forgive our sins. It isn't that he came, as we saw in John 6, that he came and said, whatever hunger you have, I'm going to fill it. He's coming and saying, no, you have the wrong hunger. You're you're hungering for the wrong bread. You've got to let me change your hunger, to change your desires. Look at what happens in 6 through 9, verses 6 through 9. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Now, here's what we see is that, you know, the What's interesting is that it's one of those countless examples that Jesus seems to give an answer that's totally unrelated to the question that was asked. You know, we kind of joked that, you know, you know I look at this and I kind of relate, you know, it's, you know, you know the ADD Jesus at times. You know, he's cast a question. His own. It's not the case. It's not that he's distracted. But I'm asking, they ask a question and he redirects. But here's what I want you to look at. What are the brothers doing? They're coming and they're saying, Jesus, we want you to go to Jerusalem. We want you to go. Make your ministry public because if they do it, they're going to love you. They're going to follow you and we want to see you have this big following. And he responds to them and saying, my time has not yet come. And what's that have to do with anything? And then he says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. And they're saying, no, go up there because the world's going to love you. Now, what in the world does this this answer have to do with what they're asking? You know, and, and why does he not only say that, you know, the brothers, we're going to love you, no, they're going to hate me. And what's this have to do with my time's yet come, not yet come? And what we're going to see again, what's, what do they expect? Jesus, come and accomplish our goals. You know, come and, and, and do the miracles. God, you know, Jesus, come and, and be the God that we hope that you will be. But Jesus says, no, I didn't come to accomplish your agenda. I didn't come to be, the, you know, if, if you want me to do all these things and perform for you, that's not who I am. Why does the world hate me? Because I expose the sin. I say that its words are, works are evil. But it's not only that he exposes the sin, he speaks the truth, but he does so, then he also came to die for that, to die on the cross. And sometimes even it's interesting, at Easter you have people that don't necessarily believe in God, don't believe in the resurrection, and they're trying to make up all these reasons why dying on the cross is a great example. 
No, the, my, my friends, the only reason that dying on the cross makes sense is that if Jesus is saying that we have a sin that deserves God's wrath, then he died for that. And, and, and he's looking at, it, at these, his brothers and he's saying, you want me to come and preach some great message that lifts you up. Here's what I'm doing. My time's coming where I'm coming to die on the cross. I'm coming to die for sins. Do you really want that? Now, people don't want to hear that message. But if you insist on focusing on the message that you want to hear, you will never hear the message that I'm actually preaching. You will never believe in who I am. You will never accept me truly, not in a way as Savior, but as, or God, but also as Savior. So that's the first kind of unbelief. The second one is unbelief expressed through uh, faith in Jesus as a great moral teacher. Now let's look at verse 10. After his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also that went up not publicly and privately. Now he had told his brothers he wasn't. And I think here's the reason why. They wanted him to go up there and they wanted to do this big, you know, huge entrance. And, you know, here's the miracle worker and we're going to set up the revival meetings and we're going to, you know, put you on TV or what, you know, they're gonna, they want to make it this huge event. And Jesus said, no, I'm not going to go for that purpose. So he goes up privately and totally ignoring what the brother's agenda is. And then finally, when he starts to make his ministry public, it's not to do miracles, but it's to teach, verse 11. So the Jews were looking for him at the feast, and they're saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him amongst the people, while some said he is a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. For yet, for, yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. So people are saying, you know, many people, he's a good man. We want to hear him. Now look at what happens in verse 14. Now in the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it this man has learning when he has never studied? Now we're going to come back to this in a few minutes of what he's saying. But what he's saying is, part of what it's saying is this. Why were people going to hear him? Because he's a great teacher. And they're looking at it and they're saying numerous places, it's like, boy, this guy teaches like no one else. He has an authority. He has, he has a, a, a you know, truthfulness to him. And so there's this huge group of people that want to hear him because they respect him as a man, they respect him as a great teacher. But what's it saying is that they didn't really receive him and embrace him as God. And that's what we saw in, again, chapter 6. You have all these people that are following him, hearing the teaching, and, but yet when he begins to teach and say, you need to trust in me alone, they turned and they walked away. See, again, there's people uh, that till, still today that claim to be followers of Christ who see Jesus as, as little more than a great moral teacher from God, but not as God. There are many churches that teach this idea, and if you have any question of that, all you have to do is to look Easter season. Every Christmas and every Easter season, you have TV stations and you have magazines that put out these specials about finding the real Jesus. And usually it's liberal theologians that talk about finding the real Jesus. And the conclusion is that Jesus was this great teacher. And here's some of the historical you know, Jesus that takes away the miracles, that takes away his divinity. And these are usually, again, religious leaders that are saying, well, the real, real Jesus was that he was a great teacher. But we've got to realize is that what the Bible's teaching is that if we believe that Jesus is a great teacher, we actually don't believe in Jesus. Why? Because if we believe him as a great teacher, we're rejecting him as God. Because a teacher is like a consultant. Um, you know, it, I, I, I missed a slide here. But a teacher is, uh, is, a, is like a consultant giving ultimate control of our lives. Uh, you know, uh, but it, we give ourselves our ultimate control of our lives. 
See, if a, as a good man and as a moral teacher, if that's all who Jesus was, they could listen to him, and they could identify him, and they still reserve the right to disagree with him, then and now. See, we look at that and we say, well, I'm going to study the Bible, and, and boy, I really respect Jesus. But if he's a teacher, I can love what he says, but I reserve the ultimate right to submit his, to his authority or not to submit to his authority. When he confronts my beliefs, things that I don't like, I, I can say, well, you know, he's, you know, he's a good teacher, but I'm not going to submit. And if he's God, I have to submit. You see, if he's God, he's speaking ultimate truth, and, and I'm giving him authority in my life. There's a vast difference. Believing in Jesus as a moral teacher is safe. I can affirm him, but he's safe. And the ultimate question is, is, is ultimately, who has authority in our lives? Is he a consultant that I can listen to, I can take his advice, and I reserve final say? Or is he God? In which case, I start by acknowledging that as God, that he knows ultimate truth, he speaks ultimate truth, and I start by saying, I relate to God not by listening and considering, but by submitting and obeying. The fact is, the nature of our faith will always be revealed by who we give ultimate authority in our life. Do we keep that for ourselves, or, or do we turn it over to God? When I accept Jesus only as a man, good man and moral teacher, then, then I get to choose what they say if it's true, if it, if it applies to my life. I might say it's true, but, but it doesn't really apply to my life at this time in this culture. You know, I'm going to listen to him, but I, I get to evaluate whether it really applies in here and now. But if I accept him as God, I start with the assumption that whatever he says will be right. Whatever he says will be true. And my response shouldn't be to evaluate and decide if it applies to me in the here and now, because no, it always does. My response instead will be to evaluate where my life is out of accord with where he's, what he says to me, because I know it always applies to me, and then I should figure out, okay, God, how do you want me to surrender? How do you want me to live in a life that, that submits to your authority as Lord and God? Again, what we saw in John 6 is that, you know, that, you know, the people following him this day, you know, they liked him until he challenged them. You know, I talk to people all the time that will say something about, well, I really believe in God, and he's a great teacher, and I submit to his authority, and, but I disagree here. You know, but I, I, you know, I just don't agree here. And look at all the areas that I submit. Look at all the areas I obey here and here and here and here. But here's what we need to realize. that again, my friends, the question of whether we really submit to God's authority isn't defined by where we agree with him, but it's where we disagree with him. I mean, this is a simple example that I know I've used before, but when we think about with children, if I, if I look at my children and I say, well, let me show, I've got great kids, they're real obedient, and I bring you into my home and I say, okay, well, it's dinner time, and I'm gonna, I've got little kids, and I'm going to put in front of them, I'm going to put dessert, and I'm going to say, eat your dessert, and they eat their dessert, and I say, man, aren't my kids obedient? Then they are so obedient, I told them to eat their dessert. Or if I look at them and I say, what do you want to do right now? You know, it's a, you know do you want to do work and do your chores or do you want to go play? I want to go play. Okay, I'm going to tell you go play. Look, they obey me. My kids are so obedient. I mean, do I have obedient kids? You have no idea. Because their obedience and surrender to my authority isn't defined by how well they do and doing the things they want to do. It's when I tell them to do the things they don't want to do. So if I put the vegetables in front of them and say, no, now here, eat your vegetables or you don't get dessert, and see how they respond then, and you will tell whether they really respect my authority and submit to my authority as their dad. 
Or when I tell them, I know you want to go play, but here are the chores that you have to do. Go work outside for a couple hours and have a good attitude. And if they do it with a good attitude, you say, no, there's a child that really respects my authority and obeys. But if they disobey, if they're trying to get around it, the fact is, it's when they disagree, when they don't like what I say, only then do you see the true nature of, of, their, of their obedience, of their relationship to me. Okay, now let's make this personal. Again, I'm, I'm, I know I'm going to probably step on some toes here, but hopefully in a loving way. There are many people in churches today, and even in our church, who claim to believe in Jesus as God, but their actions reveal that in fact, in reality, they only believe in him as a good teacher and as a good, as good man. It's our actions, not our claims, that reveal our true belief. We may have knowledge about certain things, but that's what John is teaching repeatedly. It's our actions that reveal what we really believe. You see, many people today will affirm the theology that Jesus is God. But when he actually confronts a belief in their thoughts or an action in their life, without any sense of shame, they're going to turn around and say, well, but that doesn't apply to me. You see, when I accept him as a good, moral, good man or moral teacher, I get to choose what the teacher says and evaluate whether it's true for me, whether it applies to me at this point in life. He's, again, he's a teacher, a consultant. That's what they're doing. If I accept him as God, again, I start with the assumption that everything that he says is right. I start with the assumption that I've got to say he's going to challenge me and my obedience is defined by my surrender. Again, as a pastor, I've had various forms of this conversation countless times over, over the years. And, you know, I'll be talking to somebody who's part of the church and, and who clearly claims to believe in Jesus Christ, to accept them as, as not only a teacher, but as God. And they're going to tell me all the things that they're doing. They're going to tell me, well, I'm doing this, I'm reading the Bible, I'm going to this Bible study, I'm, you know, all the areas that they're obeying God. But when I come to that one area where I know that they're disregarding God, you know, we, we clearly know, here's what God's word says, and and it's not just that they messed up, it's a consistent lifestyle choice that disregards God's word. What they're going to often do is that they're going to look at me and they're going to say, well, I, I know that God's word says, but it doesn't apply to me here now. Now again, this applies to every area. So we can look at it and talks about forgiving and are you willing to forgive and, and what we say in gossip and our fi finances and all these areas. But again, as a pastor over 30 years, I would say by far more than any issue that I've had to deal with, always consistently comes back way more than anything else to issues of relationships and sexuality. And I think the reason for that is because as a culture, it's our thinking culturally and our behavior on issues of, of relationships and sexuality is more out of, out of step with God's word than probably any other issue. So I'll talk to people and they're going to say something like, I know that by the Bible says that you know, we, sh we shouldn't have sex until we get married. And I know the Bible says, but you know, the culture has changed and, and you know, we're getting married older and, and, you know, and because of culture change, it doesn't apply to us now. Or I know the Bible says that we shouldn't live together until we're married. And, and, but here's why it doesn't apply to us now. You know, we want to save money and, and, and do, start our family responsibly or we want to make sure that we're compatible or... Or people come and say, well, I know that the relationship that we have, it's not biblical. It's not, it's not something that God, you know, this isn't the person that God wants me to be with according to his word. But, but I know, you know, here's why it doesn't apply to me now. And here's what, what you're, if this, is, if this is you, if you've said this, if you're saying this now, what you're saying is, well, I claim to believe that Jesus is God. In reality, my actions show that practically, he's, he's a good teacher. He's a good consultant. 
And so while I claim to believe he's, he's, you know, he's God, the fact is I'm going to listen to his voice and then I'm going to evaluate it and I'm going to decide on my own authority. I reserve the right to decide whether it applies to me now or not. And if I decide it doesn't, well, you know, that's, you know, the, you know here's the reasons why. But again, you're claiming to believe in God, but in reality, you're reserving ultimate authority for yourself. What you're saying is, you're the consultant, I'm the God who has ultimate say, your word conforms to me. And my friends, when we all make God not, not a consultant, a teacher, we're saying, no, you're God, and my opinion has to conform to you. And so, friends, I've got to look at that, and I've got to say, if this is describing where you're at in life right now, I need to be lovingly direct, according to God's word, regardless of the claims that you make. The fact is, your actions are showing that Jesus is no more to you than a teacher and a consultant, that you do not believe in God, that Jesus is God. Now, I'm not saying that to condemn you or to beat you up, but to point out the truth to do so is an invitation to hopefully, hopefully make you aware that Jesus is calling you into relationship with him as Savior and God, but you can only have that relationship if you accept him for who he is. And the question is, will you come to him and embrace him as, as the God that you claim to believe in theory? Will you now make that relationship real in practice? And I hope that you'll do so. There are many that maybe you've had that in the past, but God's calling you back to that today. The third kind of unbelief is unbelief is expressed in, as, as religion. I look at verse 14. In the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but who has sent me? Now, now, here's why they're marveling, is that they're looking at that and it says, how is it he's never studied? They had a system of learning that was established in that day. And their system of learning was that they saw themselves as the ultimate authority, the source of truth. So they not only studied the Bible, they had these books upon books that were written explaining the Bible. And they had different authorities that had written certain books and you would become part of this school or that school where you would study this person's explanation. And you would not only do that, but you would then identify with some kind of a teacher. So, so Paul himself talked about that as a Jew, that he was a student of, of this great teacher, Gamaliel. And, and he talks about that because he identified that. And what Jesus is saying is they're coming, they're saying, okay, what school are you coming from? You know, how can you have this great teaching when you, you haven't studied under one of our leaders, under one of our teachers? You know, he doesn't have, he doesn't, he's never studied, he's, he's never studied our schools. And we're the source of authority. You know, we're the ones that, that say what God's word says. And what Jesus says is, no, my teaching is not mine. It's him who sent me. When he says this, what he's saying is that my authority isn't from a seat of great learning. It is that I'm not going to look at this Jewish leader or this book here. What I'm doing is that I'm saying my authority comes from God himself. I'm not going to this book about the Bible. I'm going to the Bible. I'm the one who is all, the authority of the Bible. I'm the one who sent me. It's not, and he's not only saying, it's, it's, these aren't my ideas. He's saying, well, I disagree with that. And th this is not a question of saying this teacher versus this, this teacher, this. Like, these are not the opinions of a man. I'm speaking now the words of God. These are his ideas. And so if your authority is some academic school or some opinion or this or that, you know, God trumps all those things. 
See, what we've got to realize, it's still our, tradition, our, our problem that we have people that will focus on spiritual opinions rather than God's truth. And that's still out there today, that you have people that, again, you have people that will write all, who's the real Jesus? And here's all these people and all these opinions. And, and, or you'll find people that, I don't like something. So we go online and we find somebody that agrees with what we like. I, I get that all the time. You know, somebody, well, the Bible says this. Well, I went online and I found someone that agreed with me. Well, of course, if you look hard enough, you'll find someone that agrees with you. But what does the Bible say? It's not a question of spiritual opinions. What does God say in his word? Look what he continues to say, verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether he's teaching from God or whether I'm speaking on authority. You know, saying, you know, basically, you know, if you really want to do God's will, then you're going to read God's word and you're going to figure out what it says and what it clearly says and you submit to it. But what happens, a lot of people look at God's word and they don't like what it says, so I go find some spiritual authority that will agree with what I want it to say. No, it doesn't matter if you have religious authorities. The question is, are you agreeing with God what God said in his word? He's saying, no, you took God's word, which is the ultimate provision that was pointing towards me. And here you are, you're using it to somehow argue against the Messiah that, that the whole Bible points towards. You think that it's a set of rules that will somehow make you acceptable to God where everything was in there that was showing that you aren't acceptable to God, that you need to rely upon God's provision, and I am that provision. See, the problem was something that John described all the way back in the beginning of the gospel, verse, or John 1.10. He was in the world, and the world was made, though the world was made through him, the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. You know, they're saying, here I am. Everything in the Bible points to this. And look what he calls us to do in verse 24. He says, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now, what is that calling us to? First of all, I want you to see that it's calling us to judge. We live in a culture where if, 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 if I say something's wrong, if I say, well, here's truth, well, how dare you judge? How, what makes you think that your truth is better than my truth? Or, now, my, my friends, when the Bible talks about, in, John, or in Matthew 7, don't judge, it means don't pass penalty. It doesn't mean don't discern truth. And here he's calling us that we should be judges. We should be people that discern truth. And the truth isn't about my opinion is better than anyone else's opinion, but judging is, what, what does he call it? Judge with right judgment. We're called to discern, make a, a discerning judgment based, what's based on what right or wrong to come up with conclusions. And what is the right judgment? The right judgment is is literally what is right or just or righteous. It means that we have judgment that conforms with what is right, with what is true, with what is just. And so it's not a matter of, okay, well, here's what I look at, and here's opinions. No, at the end of the day, God gives us truth, and he calls us to say, you know, as, as, as students of his word, as people that seek to know him, make judgments about truth but your judgments of truth shouldn't be upon what sounds right to you, or what's politically popular, or what the most scholars agree on. It should be, does it align with God, what God has revealed about himself clearly in the Bible? And if it does, then we should proclaim the truth. And it's not being judgmental. It's not, you know, it's not cutting people down. It's, it's proclaiming the truth and says, this is true because it's what God says about himself. The question is, do we align ourselves with that? And what does he say? He says that again, he's came, he came to Jerusalem because his time was coming. It's a message of God's grace. What is God's grace? It's accepting in God's unmerited favor. 
And that means that unlike the religious people trying to do the right things or the, you know, the you know, people that like the miracles or the teachers who, who are, re- maintain control because we think we're good people, it means that I admit that I don't, admit, don't deserve God's favor, that I don't deserve his grace, that I'm a sinner, that I've fallen short of the glory of God. That what I deserve based on my performance, based on my actions, isn't God's reward, it's God's punishment. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. I have to admit that my ideas are wrong. I have to be, allow myself to be confronted with God's truth as expressed in his word. And when he challenges me and points out things that are wrong, I have to admit it. I have to let the world or the God's word confront me and expose things that are wrong. And when the Bible calls something sinful, I have to agree with them it's sinful. I, I not ex- express and explain it around. And that's very unpopular in our culture today. And I know that, but it's God's truth. And then I have to admit my actions are sinful, but that's not because I look at that and it's, you know, this terrible news that, that God's this mean judge that's trying to get me. No, he wants me to admit that my actions are sinful. So I admit that I need grace. And when I find that admission of grace, I confess, I agree with God, and then I recognize that God has made a way for me to be forgiven, not through what I do, but through what Jesus Christ came to do for me when he died on the cross. The message of Easter, that he died on the cross and admit, God, I I agree with you, I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me and to give me the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that leads us to the true faith. And what is that true faith? We've seen all these pictures of wrong faith, and But the contrast is in the verses right before this, remembering that the chapter divisions weren't there initially. If you have your Bibles, look at verses uh, 66 through 68 or 69 in chapter six. It's true faith is defined, expressed as trust and surrender. See, after confronting the crowd and people were leaving Jesus because they didn't like what he said, Jesus looked to his 12 and he said, you know, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? And again, we saw last week, Peter saying, he's not saying, we love what you're saying, you're great. You know, he's saying, no, you're stepping on our toes. We don't like it. It's uncomfortable. It's hard, but it's true. It's true. Where else are we going to go? Are we going to go hide in what we like? Are we going to go hide in what's comfortable and lie to ourselves and ultimately at the end of the day, you know, feel good about our lie, but continue down the path of lie that's going to lead to destruction, lead to separation from God? Are we going to recognize that although we don't like it, it's true? And what does he say? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. You're the Holy One of God. It's not you're just a great teacher. You're not the great miracle worker. You're not the person that's going to do what we want. No, you're the Holy One of God. And whereas your call upon our life is hard, it means to surrender. Yes, it is hard to, to, to embrace him, not only as our teacher, but as God. To, to say that it's not only consultant, but I surrender to his truth. That's hard. It's humbling. But my friends, when we understand that it's true, we recognize that he calls us to surrender, not, not, not for selfish reasons, but he's calling us to acknowledge what's true, that that when we live a lie that's not aligned with truth, it's ultimately going to end up as a mess. It's, we're not going to have a relationship with God. We're never going to discover the full life that he, in, that he intends for us. And so we say, no, I want to have a true faith that, that trusts the truthfulness of Christ, of his word of the Bible, that surrenders to that truthfulness, even when it's hard, because I recognize that if I do, that and that alone is the place that I'm going to find life. 
world will promise it. But as Jesus says in John 10, yeah, the, he, the world comes to steal, steal and kill and to destroy. It will promise, but its promises are all false. Only in Christ will we find life and will we find it abundantly. He invites you to that life today. If you don't know him, will you trust in him? If you've wandered away, if you have areas in your life that you've made him consultant, will you surrender to him as God? He invites you to do that. Each one, no matter where we're at, no matter how far we are, he invites us to that relationship with him where we will find life and life everlasting. Thanks for joining us. If you have any questions about what we talked about, Jesus Christ, our church, or anything else, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or by email. We'd love to hear from you.